Well, we heard a lot about the Christmas uh, story, a lot of uh, elements to that, lots of characters come and go, um, but I want to take us back to the very, the very first reading that we heard. The very first reading foretold the birth of Jesus, and it told us very, something very, very important, that he would be God with us. Those three words, God with us, Emmanuel. And really, it was from the prophet Isaiah that he's quoting there. But what that tells us is that the, <laughs> the birth of Christ is not about his infancy. It's about his deity. And that's really where I want to focus on today. I want to take us back to um, a couple of passages, but the, the primary teaching I'll take us to is Colossians chapter 1. So you can turn in your Bibles there if you would like to. But one passage that comes to mind, just to sort of set this up, is John chapter 1. If you've ever read John's gospel, he tells us about the deity of Christ. That's the whole reason John wrote his, his gospel. In John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, this is what he tells us. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So we find this, 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 this word, whatever this word is, um, preexisted. It was with God, but also was God. And who is this word? What is this word? And what we find out in verse 14, uh, a very clear picture of who this word is. In verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, meaning John and the other uh, disciples, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the disciples and the writers of the New Testament, they were, they were all convinced, convinced that Jesus was God. And when you read the New Testament, that comes very clear. But the question is, how could this baby in a manger, you go around in city center and you see these little nativity sets, how could that little baby in a manger, how could that be God? And that's what I want to look at today. I've titled the sermon, God in a Manger, and I want to take us to Colossians chapter 1. I'll be reading just just verses 15 to 20 today. So follow along if you're there. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, with the short amount of time that we have today, I just pray, Lord, that we would see very clearly today who that baby in that manger was. Lord, your word tells us very clearly here. Lord, we need your spirit. Would you just be with us today to just give us this truth, reveal it to us, and Lord, help us to allow this truth to sink into our hearts, the, the magnificence of it, the reality of it, Lord, that uh, we might live more boldly for you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a couple of points. We come from the scripture here, and the point the first point is this, that Jesus is the image of God, the image of God. He says, actually, the image of the, the invisible God, doesn't it say that there? 
And your scripture repeatedly affirms this, that no man has ever seen God. That's what scripture teaches us. We remember way back when, when Moses wanted to see God. And, and God told him, you can't see my face, for no man shall see me and live. John, in the New Testament, wrote this in John chapter 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. In fact, Jesus himself said these words in John chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father himself, who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. So God has not been seen. He is a spirit. God is described as a spirit in John 4, 24. And here in the passage we're looking at in Colossians, he's described as invisible. So Jesus is the, the, the image of the invisible God. But in Jesus, God is perfectly manifest. I want to show you that today. He is the exact image of God. In fact, that word image is this word in the Greek, icon. Well, that's where we get our word icon from. It's icon. It's a precise copy a duplicate. He is the exact reproduction of God. But the question is, and some of you are thinking it right now, if God is a spirit and he's not a man, then how can Jesus be God? Because he is clearly a man, right? I mean, he, we have all these verses about Mary giving birth to a male child. We sang all these songs about him. We know that eight days later, he was taken to Jerusalem to be circumcised. Let me tell you, he was a man, okay? He was born a man, a human How do we know that he is God? Well, the beginning of the book of Hebrews, and I chose not to teach from Hebrews today because that's going to be our new study starting in January, but it correlates very closely with Colossians chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says this about about him, and and verse 23 is, uh, verse uh, 2 and 3 are there, that he being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That's that's Jesus. He is the brightness of, of his glory. As the the brilliance of the light is to the sun, that's the idea here. That is that Christ is the brightness of God's glory. The light, remember the, the light, that is the essence of the sun, right? When you see that light that you go, the sun's up, right? When, when you're not living in Wales in the winter. But when you see that light, you know the sun is up, or Alaska, <laughs> apparently. You have no sun right now, apparently. Yeah, zero sun there. So don't go there. But when you have the light, you go, the sun must be up. Light is the essence of the sun. Christ, listen, Christ reveals God's very essence. That is the point here. He is the brilliance of his, his, of like the sun, of the glory. But he also is the express image of his person. Now that word, express image, those two words are one word in the, the Greek. It's where we would get our word character from. And that means it really actually comes from the impression that was made by a dye or, or a stamp into a wax seal. He is the exact reproduction of his person. That design on that die is reproduced into the wax seal. And he is the image of his person. That is hypostasis. That's his nature. So he is the exact image of God, God's nature. So in Colossians chapter 1 here, he says he's the image of the invisible God. That means that Jesus is everything God is, except he's in bodily form. There is an exception there. God the Father is not a man, yet everything God is, his fullness is seen in Christ in bodily form. Skip down to verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That word fullness means completeness. 
that all the fullness, the completeness, the perfect perfection of God, that's all dwelling or abiding lastly, lastingly in Jesus. But he's in bodily form. Skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do you see that? Bodily. So the difference here is that, that everything that God is has come to be represented to man as a man, through a man, the God-man, Jesus. That's why Jesus said when he walked the streets of Jerusalem, when people asked, show us the Father. He said, why do you ask me to show you the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen what? The Father. You've seen the Father. Everything the Father is, I am, which is what he said of himself. And when he said, I am, they picked up stones to kill him. So you want to know what God is? You want to know who he is? You need to look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. Second point we get from our passage here is that he is the firstborn of God. We're told he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, this word firstborn has led to no end of complication. Um, there are, uh, uh, there are, well, I'll just say Jehovah's Witnesses uh, believe that Jesus Christ is a created being. And the reason is, they'll look at this verse, they'll take you to this verse, and they'll say, because, look, he is firstborn, prototokos. And that word can mean first, as in chronologically, but most often in Scripture, that's not what it means. And here, um, we know what it means here because of the context of the passage. Just look at what it says. He's the firstborn over all creation. Why? For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones, or dominions, or, or principalities, or power. All those things were created through him and for him. But see, if you want to believe that Jesus is a created being, you have to change the passage. And that's what they have done. Jehovah's Witnesses, if you have a New World Translation, have added the word other in there. They've added it six times. You have to. You have to. If he's a created being, and because you can't be the creator, right, and a creation. And so their Bible says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all other things were created. He's before all other things, and in him, all other things consist. The problem is that word other is not in the Greek. It's not in the original translation. So you have to add that if you want to change it. Now listen, if Paul wanted to tell us that Jesus was first created, he would have used a different word. He would have used the word prototokis, but he did not. He used this word. This word can mean firstborn chronologically, but also most often in the New Testament refers to preeminence, position, rank. That's what it means. See, he preceded the whole creation, the firstborn over all creation. In the Old Testament, the firstborn child, he was the heir. Right? He was the one that was superior. He received the birth, birthright. But sometimes the one who received the rights of the firstborn was not actually firstborn. You just look at Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob, he received the birthright, but he was born second. Hebrews, told you Hebrews really correlates well with this, tells us this about him in verse uh, 2 of chapter 1, that he has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. You see, the firstborn is the heir. He is the preeminent one. He is the heir of all things. And that's why Jesus declares himself to be what in Revelation? I am the first and I am the last. I'm the very first, he says. I'm the beginning and the end. He existed before creation and therefore he's preeminent over, that's what it says over, over all of creation. You take a look at Psalm 
uh, chapter 89, verse 27. This is a, a perfect illustration of the meaning of firstborn. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. That's the meaning there. Our New Testament says it this way about him. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. You know why it says that? He's the firstborn over all creation. He's the preeminent one. He's superior. That's what that means. In fact, you go to verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1. It says he is, it goes on to tell us how he is preeminent. Well, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, all things he might have preeminence. He's preeminent even over his church. He's the head of that. He's preeminent even over the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead. Same word is being used there. He's, was he the first person to ever have died? No. Was he the first per- person to ever have been resurrected? No, he himself resurrected Lazarus. But he's the firstborn from the dead, the first one to be raised in a glorified body and conquer death. Why? Preeminent, superior to death. Does that make sense? So if we want to take firstborn to mean created, we're going to have a problem with firstborn from the dead too. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's preeminent. So this, this baby Jesus, this child in this manger, he is the express image of God. And he is the firstborn over all creation. But there's a third thing we find here. He is, hold on to your hats, creator God. Look at verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. You see, we all know the book of Genesis. We all know that Genesis tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And yes, the word God there is in the plural. And we know that the triune God is glimpsed in the Old Testament. Let us make man in our image. But it isn't elaborated upon. Not until the New Testament do we really find out the intricacies of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working one. One God. So here, this is the idea. It gives us light about the creation. Jesus himself was the one who created. That is mind-boggling. But remember John chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. I put it up a, a few minutes ago. Here it is again. It told us that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And look at All things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. Nothing exists on this earth. Nothing exists in the planet. Nothing exists in the universe that wasn't first made by Jesus. And Hebrews tells us the same thing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. These last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he is appointed heir of all things, and what? Through whom also he made the worlds. Listen, Jesus made everything, all of it. Listen, you have to get your mind around that. You look at our, our, our son. You can fit 1,200,000 earths into the sun, and you can still have room in that sun for over 4 million moons. You think our earth is big. Let me show you some slides. I'm sure you've seen these. These are rather old. But just to give us a comparison of how really small we are and insignificant in terms of the creation, here's a picture of our, of our, well, our galaxy. That's not it. Is it there? There it is. All right, so there's Earth, and you've got Venus and Mars and Mercury. Pluto. Pluto's not even a planet anymore, right? Did we, like, chuck out poor Pluto? Anyway. Shows you, like, we look at that, we go, oh, Earth is pretty good size, right? Not a bad-sized planet. Let's go to the next one. Okay, there's Earth way down in the left corner. Do you see that? Now, that's Earth. Now, look at Uranus and Neptune and Saturn and Jupiter. 
It's still not bad. You know, we're pretty good size, but you start comparing us to the other planets and our, you go, wow, our solar system, these are, these are, we're, we're, we're kind of dinkling here, but let's go next one. Okay, there's the sun. And yeah, there's a line pointing to that dot. That's Earth. And, and Pluto, you can almost not even see Pluto anymore, right? That's the sun. And we, I mean, are you feeling small yet? Oh, it goes, it gets worse. Let's go. Let's go to the next one. Ah, there you go. Arcturus. We, we know about Arcturus. Where's the sun? That last one over there. Yeah. Earth is invisible. You can't even see Earth at this point. And even Jupiter is a little white pixel, which you can't see in the back row. Okay. Remember, Jupiter looked big, didn't it? We're, 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 we're gone. And we got one more after this. There we go. Betelgeuse, Antares, Arcturus is way down there. Uh, the sun is a pixel at this point. And folks, let me tell you, it just keeps going. You know who made that? Jesus, that baby in a manger, is your creator. Is that not blowing your mind? You guys, we are small. We are small. We're so insignificant. Yet that God who created all those things came here as a baby. Pretty incredible. Not only did he make all of that, he continues to hold it all together. Look at verse 17. He's before all things, and in him all things consists. That word consists means to bind or place together. Jesus holds all those things together. That is corroborated in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 as well, that he is the brightness of his glory. We looked at that. He is the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. That is a humbling verse. You know what that tells me? That tells me that if Jesus just decided to say, nope, I'd be gone. This earth would be gone. I'm done. That's what you see in Revelation when he returns. The sword coming out of his mouth, he's not, it's not going to be much of a fight. He's just going to say, I win. <laughs> and it's done. It's done. That is who you should worship. He created everything. He sustains everything. He keeps holding it all together. And Without Jesus, none of us would be here. So Jesus is the image of God. He's the firstborn of God. He's creator God. And if it makes you wonder why he chose to come into our world to enter this creation, he's also the lamb of God. That's why he came. And this is where we come to verse 20. Verse 20 says, By him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus came in, into our world here as God in order to reconcile us to God. I've said it many times, but God himself gave himself to save us from himself. It's his own wrath. Jesus came into our world to do that. And we're told here to reconcile us to God. God never left us. We left him. It's us that needed reconciling to the God that we departed It's his creation that needed reconciling, that we needed peace. And in the Old Testament, that was done temporarily through a sacrificial lamb. You sacrificed a lamb or a goat or a sheep or whatever. You sacrificed that animal to make peace with God, temporary peace. Well, Jesus came as that lamb. Remember when John the Baptist first saw Jesus? What did he say about him? Behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He understood it. We'd eat a lamb. We need a perfect sacrifice, and Jesus is that lamb. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, again, 
Lynn's support here. It says, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he purged our sins, he went and sat down. You see, it's true that Jesus is king of kings and he's Lord of lords, but scripture tells us that he first came as a servant. He came to purge our sins. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, we're told that just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why he came, to give his life, to serve us. Now, that should just stop us right there. We just saw that, the pictures of the planets, the creation. And shouldn't the creation be worshiping the creator and serving him? Yet he came to serve you. What's your response to that? Humble adoration is what it should be, humility. But he came to provide reconciliation, and we're told peace. And that way of peace has been provided to you at no cost to you. It cost him a lot, but no cost to you. And that's because it's a gift, which is the final point. He is also the gift of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages, the penalty, the payment for sin is, is death, and that, that is right because God is a holy God, a righteous judge, and he demands, he demands a, a, a death for, for your sin. That, that, that's it. He, he gets to call the shots, folks. He's the creator. We just saw that. He gets to say what the penalty is, and we do deserve death because we've offended him and failed to worship our creator, our sustainer. But John 3, 36 tells us this, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. That is good news. You get it through him. But he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, people like to point out the love of God, the love of God, the love of God. Let me tell you, the wrath of God is real. It does abide on those who will not submit their need to Jesus Christ. He is a loving God, but he's a just God. He is a holy God. He is a righteous judge. And you know what? He's a good judge, and he's going to do what good judges do, and he's going to punish those who sin, those who do wrong. And I am one of those. And praise be to God that because the Lamb of God was sent to this earth, because this great gift was handed to us, my simple just saying, I will receive that gift. That's all it took. By faith. It's by faith. I just, I accept it. You, your sacrifice was enough. That is all. That is all you need to have that everlasting life. There's no hoop you need to jump through. There's no, not, not so much you need to give to the church. There's not so much you need to do. Listen, your heart will want to because you'll realize how much you've been saved from. But listen, that is not the requirement. And God has died for you, and he is coming with his wrath, and that is real. And I don't know when that will be. Time is running out. He's been very faithful and very patient. In fact, we're told that in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He hasn't, he hasn't given up on his promise to come and make things right, but as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, that, but that all should come to repentance. See, God, he, he wants people to come to him. So the longer he waits, and I know a lot of us are like, oh, just come, Lord Jesus, I can't take it anymore. Just remember this. There are still people coming into the kingdom. So the longer he waits, we have to remember this passage that says, ah, but he's, he's still drawing people in. Praise God that he didn't come back last year. Why? Because Bryony wouldn't be in the kingdom. Start thinking about that, right? What will heaven be like without Bryony? <laughs> it's true, though. We get to know you and go, ah, how many people are in your life that you go, I just wish they could know Christ. 
So as long as I can say, okay, God, I'm happy for you to be slack and to wait, it's because I know that people are coming into the kingdom. He's not willing that any should perish. But I will say, don't wait too long because the offer will not remain open forever. He will come and he will judge sin. And so when we look at this passage, we do see some amazing things about this baby in a manger. What do you see? Do you see your creator there? Hmm? Do you see your, your savior in that manger? Do you see God? Because God was in that manger. Let me pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word to us, Lord, and for the reminder, Lord, that you're God. And you did not have to come into this world at all. You could have chosen just to be done with your rebellious creation, but instead you uh, came up with this amazing plan of salvation where you would enter our world. You would come as a man to show us the way, to die for us, to pay the penalty for us so that we could spend eternity with you. What an amazing uh, good news that is. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news. It's an incredible Lord, of this Christmas season, I pray that we would not get caught up in the hustle and the bustle and the commercialism and all the things that are out there that distract us from that God in that manger. God with us, Emmanuel. Oh, we praise you, Lord. We thank you for that amazing truth. Be glorified, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.